Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to take you to London, England. Have you been, Trish, to London? No, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't flown outside the U.S. except for like Aruba and in Jamaica. But I've been to like all of North America, Canada, all 50 states except Alaska and Mexico. And you were born in Hawaii. Yeah. My dad's idea of vacation when I was younger was getting in the car and seeing how many states you could hit in a three-day period. So he did a lot of ground covering. Knowing your parents, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. So before we go to London, I wanted to take a second and thank all of our listeners in the United Kingdom because you are one of our top listening countries. Yes, outside of the U.S. So thank you to Barnett, Worksop, Liverpool, Ipswich, Camden Town, Horsforth. I'm really hoping I'm saying these right. The City of Westminster, London, Surbiton, Climsford, Essex, Swindon, Ellesmereport, Cheshire, and Dagenham. So you guys are our top listeners. And again, we can't see who you are. We just see where you are. And that also sounds a little <laughs> creepy, but thank you. So we're going to London and we're going to go back to... 1942. So as we all should know, this was right in the middle of World War II, which took place from 1939 to 1945. So in 1941 in London, there was the air raids going on that's known as the Blitz. So the Blitz comes from the German word for lightning. And again, it was given to the name of the aerial bombardment that lasted seven days. And London during this time had to observe blackouts, trying to make it more difficult for the Germans to attack more highly populated areas. So from the sky, they didn't want them to be able to see where those lights were at night and know where civilians may be. While the death toll was very high with these bombardments, the even more pressing problem of homelessness was upon London because all of these homes, apartments, buildings, it was all destroyed. And if you see pictures from that time, I mean, throughout all of World War II in Europe, it was just overtaken. But when you see pictures of London from that time and when you see it now, it's unbelievable how far they've come from that time. So again, people were left with nowhere to go. And you see pictures of people sleeping in subway stations, just hordes of people trying to find anywhere safe to, to sleep. And with people never knowing which day would be their last, the city just moved deeper and deeper into chaos. From 1939 to 1945, crime rose in London by over 50%. And again, it, they attributed a lot to people feeling desperate, people not knowing when their last day would be. So they would just, it was a lot of looting, robbing, criminal attacks. It was it was a bad place to be at that time. Well, their whole lives were turned upside down and even just trying to get food, water, shelter. I mean, places were destroyed. So I'm going to take you forward to February of 1942. So by this time, the Blitz was over, but blackouts were still being observed all across London to avoid further air attacks or other attacks on civilians and the city itself. On the morning of February 9th, an electrician was walking to work and saw a torch, a flashlight, lying on the ground outside of an air raid shelter. When he peered inside, he saw the body of a woman. She was lying on her back and the officers who arrived on the scene could see signs of strangulation and based on the bruising, they could tell that the killer was left-handed. Her skirt had been hiked up, showing her stockings and underwear, and her vest, or as we would call it a jacket, 
was torn exposing her breast. On the scene to investigate was Detective Chief Superintendent Frederick Cheryl. So he was known as the fingerprint man. And since 1938, he had been the head of the fingerprint department with Scotland Yard. He insisted on always visiting scenes himself. So even though he had this very high rank, he insisted on actually visiting the scenes himself and getting fingerprints. Now, at this time, fingerprinting was still a newer science, and it was largely thanks to Frederick Cheryl that it had been recognized as a forensic tool. So I know we talked in our Velisca case about looking at fingerprints, and that was in 20, 1920, 1921? Actually, 1912. So in the U.S. at that time, fingerprinting for criminal justice purposes came about in 1911, but they had used it prior to that for like prisoners and also the military was using it, but it wasn't really used as an investigative tool and just starting out really in 1911 and 1912. So in 1938 in England, though, you were mentioning when I read through your notes something, they were doing something more. Yeah. So this was at the point where they had really started not only cataloging, but also being able to catalog differently. So as opposed to cataloging by criminal, they were actually cataloging by fingerprints themselves. So the shape of the fingerprint, different traits within fingerprints, so that it made it easier when you would get fingerprints off of a crime scene to go through and try to match them to something. Because the big problem was it wasn't like now where you can just put it in a computer system and it does it for you. It was manually comparing, okay, these are the fingerprints at my crime scene. This is what I have on file. So they were trying to make it easier to navigate that. So the woman's belongings were at the scene, but there was nothing to identify her in her purse or on her person. Police began going door to door with a photo and were soon able to identify the woman as Evelyn Hamilton, a 40-year-old pharmacist. Now, the next day, a neighbor of 35-year-old Evelyn Oatley had let two meter maids into her apartment. Evelyn was an aspiring actress who had been married to a poultry farmer but had left the farm to pursue her career in the West End, which is sort of similar to the Broadway kind of play for those that don't know. With war times, it had been very tough for her to get work, and she had turned to sex work to support herself. They found Evelyn partially hanging over the bed with blood pooling on the floor. The killer had attempted to strangle her, but had resorted to cutting her throat. She had also been mutilated using razor blades, a flashlight, and a can opener, and all of these items had been left on the bed. I, I cringe to ask what the can opener was used for. Um, it was down there. Okay. Good enough. Yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah, <laughs> it was rough. Now, when you say meter mate, are we because I think of meter maids in two ways. I think of it as somebody who's out to read your meter or someone who's like a parking attendant, like when you parked your car and then your expired time on your parking meter. But meter maids in this way was a little different during World War Two. So I believe that it was sort of looking at the parking tickets and things like that. But at this time, because of all the chaos that was going on because of the war and so many men being taken off to war, the police force was very much dwindled. And I believe that what the neighbor was doing was trying to find the closest thing she could to a police officer. And because the meter maids are part of the police force, that's who she was reaching out to. So this neighbor was worried about her neighbor. She hadn't seen her, been able to get in contact with her. Yeah. Yeah. And she was just trying to do a welfare check, but just kind of pulling the closest thing she could find off the street to do the the welfare check. So Cheryl was also on the scene at this crime, and he was able to find a fingerprint on the can opener that had been used and was able to tell based on where the fingerprint was that this killer was left-handed as well. He used that fingerprint and began looking through records on file for a match. So again, this was a very manual process, and it was only for criminals that had their fingerprints on file already. 
After the second murder, the newspapers weren't really reporting on this at all, but the girls working in the area had all heard, and officers were out questioning, trying to get info, and also hoping that the police presence would keep the killer at bay. At this time, with the war and the crime rates on the rise, police presence again was scarce, to say the least. And keep in mind, this is during the blackouts. So at night, the only thing people have are flashlights. There's no street lamps. There's no lights coming out from buildings. There's nothing. Around 1 a.m. on February 11th, Margaret Lowe, who's 43, was approached by a well-spoken man on the street. Margaret had also turned to sex work. She was a widow and was trying to support her 15-year-old daughter in boarding school. She was well-spoken and refined, and the other workers had nicknamed her the Lady. She took him back to her apartment where he killed and mutilated her using things found in the home. So similarly to Evelyn Oatley, it was using what was already there. He wasn't bringing anything with him, but it was knives, razors, whatever he could find in the apartment. Can openers. Yes. And he was killing them before mutilating them. So it wasn't torture while they were alive. It was... So this was all post-mortem. Exactly. It was strangulation. And then once they were passed, then he would mutilate them. So her neighbors had heard nothing and he was able to sneak away quietly. On February 12th, a gentleman bought a drink for 32-year-old Mary Haywood. He tried to proposition her throwing $30 on the table, which in today's money is... A lot. You want to guess? It's like around $1,000. Wow. But she said that she was not that kind of girl. She did walk out onto the street with him from, I guess they were in a bar or a cafe, and he pulled her into a doorway and kissed her, putting her, his hands up her skirt. When he did this, she told him to stop and tried to push away, but he put his hands around her neck, trying to strangle her. She fought back, but he kept squeezing until she passed out and fell to the ground. A passing night porter heard the commotion and saw the light of a flashlight sort of flashing through the doorway, and he shone his light in and called out. The man ran off, but as he did, he dropped something on the ground. Laying there was a respirator with a Royal Air Force number 525987 printed on it. So that same night, the man continued roaming the street looking for his next victim and found sex worker Catherine Mulcahy. She took him back to her place and once in the bed, he attempted to strangle her, but she had left her boots on, allowing her to kick him in the stomach and get him off of her. Go, Catherine. She began to scream, alerting the neighbors and making him run off, but he threw money at her as he left. I find that interesting. Would you think that was to set up like if he were to get caught hey I paid for services and then she decided she didn't want services so I just left yeah I, I believe so that's what it seemed like to me so after his second unsuccessful attack he kept going and found Doris Juine she was a housewife that used sex work for extra money again war times rations she was just trying to get by he strangled her with a silk stocking and mutilated her viciously with a razor blade it wasn't until the evening of the 13th so the next night that the husband returned home from work and he found the bedroom door locked he called the police who knocked down the door and then found her body I'm curious as to why he didn't knock down the door. Like, was he a slight man that wasn't able to get through the door? I mean, it's locked. Your wife's not answering. So you're going to leave and go find the police to knock down the door for you? I didn't see a picture of him. But if I'm in a locked bedroom door, I would kind of expect my husband to knock it down himself. Just saying. Maybe that's my marital expectation. (laughs) (laughs) Or anyone's expectation. So that same evening, Margaret Lowe, who had been murdered two days prior, her mother showed up to spend the weekend with her, but no one came to the door when she knocked. The neighbors called the police for her and they knocked down that door as well, finding the same sexual sadism. It was at the discovery of these two women and the similarity between the cases that the killer began to be called the Blackout Ripper. And this, of course, is recalling Jack the Ripper because, again, just the vicious mutilation of these women. And these women mostly 
being sex workers, except for the first victim. She was a pharmacist. Correct. So now both Haywood and Mulcahy, so the two women that had been attacked, had gone to the police about their attacks and the airmen that had attacked them because he had been in uniform when they had met. But at first, no connection was made to the Ripper because all they had was that he attempted to strangle them, but there wasn't a clear connection there. He was sexually aggressive, but he hadn't done anything. Correct. So the same day, the police took leading aircraftsman Gordon Cummings into custody. So Gordon Cummings was a 28-year-old airman, and he had impressed his superiors with his efficiency and the work he had put in to go from ground crew to an airman. He was currently stationed in the air crew receiving Regent's Park for training. He was known by some as pretentious, claiming to be the illegitimate son of a royal or a noble and having this noble blood. It had even gained him the nickname of the Duke. He bragged constantly of how he charmed women and could melt their morals. His words, not mine. Despite having a young wife, Marjorie, back home. So he was kind of braggy and saying to all the other army men, Air Force men, like, hey, you know, all these women want me and I'm constantly getting tail and... I'm a ladies man that melts the morals (laughs) of sex workers, which I don't think you have to do much melting. So when questioned, he was described as evasive and arrogant, but in searching his possession, they discovered trophies. So it wasn't until they searched in his belongings that they truly linked these attacks to the blackout ripper. They found a pen engraved with Doris's initials, Margaret Lowe's cigarette case, and another cigarette case belonging to Evelyn Oatley. They also found a bloodstained shirt and the money thrown at Catherine matched the records of what he was paid. So I don't know if they kept, like if they notated bill notes. I think they did only because in times of war, I mean, rationing and and things like that. I think there was a lot of record keeping in that way. Who got what, when. Mm -hmm. So maybe it wasn't that intelligent to throw Probably not. So the fingerprints on the can opener that had been used to mutilate Evelyn and a glass in Margaret's apartment were also tied to him. In the gas mask, they had his initials and then, of course, the number that led to them finding him. And there was also mortar dust that was similar to what had been found in the air raid shelter where the first victim had been found. So this was an abandoned air raid shelter. So there was just dust and ash and all these different things. And they found those same things in his respirator mask. He was tried on April 25th for the murder of Evelyn Oatley, but the jury had been shown an incorrect exhibit. The judge had ruled that the jury had been compromised and dismissed them. So why only Evelyn? Why not the other women? I'm not sure. So the way that I looked at it, I think it was similar to, we saw this in other cases too with serial killers where they try one case trying to get a certain conviction and then they have the other cases almost as backup. And I'm not sure that they had to because at that time too, even just Evelyn's case was enough to get him convicted convicted and hanged. They didn't need more than that. And I don't think there was the same thought process as now. Like now we see a lot of people wanting them to be tried for each case to give the victim's families peace and kind of closure as well. And justice. And justice, yes. But I don't believe that there was that mentality at the time, especially when there's other things going on. It's it's World War II and, and they weren't as concerned about that piece of it. Right. And Evelyn's probably had the most evidence. I would imagine that was the strongest case against him. I'm not sure because they didn't have fingerprint like they didn't have anything from Evelyn's case this was the first I thought they had the fingerprint from the can opener with Evelyn's case that's Evelyn Hamilton oh okay this is Evan Oatley okay got it yes there were two Evelyn so the one he was tried for was the first Evelyn who's the pharmacist and again there wasn't as much physical evidence there but 
I'm also, which they, I don't have transcripts from the trial. They just didn't have that available back then. But I believe that it was also something where they, it's not as now where a lot of times they can exclude other cases if they're not being tried for that case. They were probably allowed to bring in this information, the forensics evidence into Evelyn Oatley's case, even though it wasn't found on Evelyn Oatley. So after the jury had been dismissed, a week later, a new trial began and Cheryl was a key witness. So again, this is the fingerprint man. Cummings testified stating that he was innocent and that the airmen shared masks. So it could have been anybody that left the mask there. He was convicted by a jury within 35 minutes and sentenced to hang. He continued to claim his innocence and his family attempted to appeal, but it was denied. And he was executed on June 25th, 1942. They really didn't waste much time between conviction and hanging. No, I'm guessing they did not have the lengthy appeal processes that we have now back then either. I would guess not. And it's just it's so what I found really interesting about this case was the fact that there was nothing leading up to there was no escalation that we can find on the part of Cummings. So there's not reports of attempted rapes or attempted attacks, peeping top. There's no criminal background at all. And he was even seen as almost a stellar Air Force man. So to go from that to these attacks where it's a frenzied attack, it's every night. So this this entire thing happened over a week's time from the 9th to the 14th, five days. And he attacked five women. Yeah. I mean, for that just to come out of the blue somewhere, I find it hard to believe that there was nothing prior to that, but there was nothing you could find that showed that because he came from a small, or maybe not a small, but a farming community and then was brought to London to be trained as an airman. Yeah. I would be interested if somebody could go back and find out if there's anything in his family or anything in his upbringing that would show that escalation that suddenly one week during the blackouts, he decides to attack these women to rape them. Maybe I edit that. Maybe he didn't rape them. They were <laughs> sex workers, some of them, and then to mutilate them after he kills them. I mean, mutilate them. Yeah. So a lot of my resources, there was an episode of Murder Maps, which is currently showing on Netflix. So I got a lot of information from that. And then there was also an article in the Daily Mail where they had kind of a breakdown of how this case happened. And and especially the, the Murder Maps episode, a lot of it was spent talking about, again, just London diving into chaos and that there were a lot of women that didn't have a choice but to turn to sex work. There were a lot of army men, whether that be Americans coming in, the, the British soldiers that were there. And with that concentration of, of army men, again, there was a lot of prostitution going around and that people really felt that it was the end. They didn't know how much further, how much longer they were going to live. And that with there being so much crime around them and again, so little police force, was it something where it had been urges that had been controlled for a long time and that now there was the opportunity to act on them? I, I just don't know. And it's funny too, because a lot of people I'm sure have like do criminal minds and trying to figure out like the behavioral side and profiling and all of that. And it's funny to think that when they started profiling these killers, we everybody thought they were crazy trying to ask these questions and what is this for? And now we see these cases where, where we want to ask those questions. We want to find out, you know, why did you do this? What was the motive? What was leading up to it? All of those different pieces that we just don't have. Yeah, because clearly he had to become that sexual sadist. He had to have had those thoughts. And did he keep them to himself and never act on them? I'd be curious in his farming community or, you know, were there any animals that went missing back in the day? We'll never know. Unless if anybody knows, if you have intimate details on Gordon Cummings and his family, please let us know because we're very curious. Yes. All right. So this is usually where we talk about our criminal discourse life tips. I think, Maddie, we agree on what this life tip would be. Keep your boots on. That is right. (laughs) 
<laughs> that girl that left her boots on, Catherine, you got it. You got it. She was able to fight him off. Woo. And again, report attacks because those women that were attacked, if they hadn't gone right to the police, then they might never have linked him to these cases because it was only based on that air mask that they found that linked him to them. Absolutely. Okay. Any other life tips? No. Thank you all for listening. I hope that you enjoyed it. As we say every time, you can visit us on our website. It's criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. And there's a space where you can get in contact with us. You'll see all of our show notes and you'll have access to our previous episodes. So we would love to hear from you and for you to give us a shout out on our website. You can also find us on Facebook. And then, you know, just hit hit subscribe to whatever you're using for your media player. And that way you don't have to go in and download our episodes. They'll just show up for you every week, like a little present. There you go. Every Monday. Yep. A present. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys again. And I hope you have a good one. Yeah, guys. So as Maddie said, look us up. We'd love to hear from you. And we're on Apple, iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, but yet still waiting on the Pandora. Yeah, Pandora's failing us. They're not failing. They're just taking their time. All right. But as Maddie says, if you see something, say something. If something happens to you, report it. And we want you to have a great week. Be safe. But also remember, let's be kind. Till next time time, guys. Bye. Bye.